the field of human conflict, but so much owed by so many to so few. Utrikes politik. Inga Student Radio 98.9, we are Radio UF, back today with a very special episode with special guests from across the Baltic Sea, namely... Aria, I will be hosting this episode, and here with me today in Krakow, I have... Jonah. And I am Melina Froidure. With me in the studio today is... Isaac Johansson. And we'll be discussing Chinese projection of power, looking from the Olympics... To geopolitics. I'm not sure who watched the Olympics of our listeners, but if you did, you probably thought that they were a little weird. Maybe not what you expected. Wait, did I say the Olympics or the opening ceremony? Oh, I'm so sorry. Let me take that back. I just meant the opening ceremony. The Olympics in general were great. <laughs> um, no, but the opening ceremony was a little weird. Mostly it was because there wasn't a lot of patriotism, if you will, Some people said that there was a lot. I would say it was a little bit more on the subtle side, which is shocking, I think, or maybe not. Shocking because of China's history, but not so shocking because these specific Olympics were pretty contested. There were diplomatic boycotts and there was lots of controversy, specifically because of the CCP's behavior in Xinjiang amongst their many other problematic policies, domestically, foreign, etc. So I really thought that these opening ceremonies were going to be maybe a display of power, like the CCP likes to do, but it wasn't exactly what I was expecting. There was a lot of references to the season, the new year. I think they opened them right on the new year day, if I'm not mistaken. Do you know? I'm actually not sure. Pretty sure the New Year's must have been just before. You just heard Själen är svart by Sina. Du lyssnar på Studentradion 98,9. Now back to the show. The first images that you see, they're calling back to, I think it's 24 or something. 24 like natural elements and that's their countdown to start off the ceremony. And so... After that, they have a lot of children. <laughs> um, the opening ceremony had a lot of children singing, presenting the flag. They had one child playing the trumpet, which I thought was super impressive. And he was alone, so also brave. I was a little confused as to why there were so many teenagers and children. And after doing a little bit of research, I saw that Actually, first of all, other than the fact that children just scream innocence, there seems to be that this Qinglang campaign 
which translates to cleansing and contaminated or cleansed and uncontaminated, which was implemented in order to reduce idol culture in China, specifically for big celebrities or athletes that have a lot of following on their platform Weibo. It seems that they've been having a lot of controversies on this platform and uh, because they're so public, they've been wanting to reduce this idol culture, if you will. So there was no big celebrity. There was no big singer. It was just a collective display of children, teenagers, and regular Chinese children. And there was a lot of technology, as you would expect. They had this beautiful floor that had all of these visual effects. I mean, really, it was a showcase of technology, which is not really surprising since that's something that Beijing really takes pride in. Other than that, I would point out that the music was also not very Chinese, not even from the very beginning. They had a lot of very inspirational ballads and classical music. I think the most interesting and peculiar one was when the American team walked out, and it wasn't just the American team, it was some other teams as well, and they were playing lots of classical European music, nothing that really screamed Chinese traditional instruments. And I was shocked because when I've been to China, a lot of the times they, it's one of the first things you do, you go to a music class and they show you how to play all of these instruments that are native to the country. So I was surprised. Another thing that I think is worth mentioning and maybe will come up later in discussion is how the certain words and phrases that they chose to display were very much like, we're working together for a shared future. We're going faster, higher, stronger together. And so there was this overall theme of togetherness and innocence. I mean, there were snowflakes everywhere. And so it definitely seemed to me like wanting to erase a little bit of the problematic two years that the entire world has suffered through because of their decisions to not inform the rest of the world about what was about to happen in late 2019 and then into 2020 once COVID hit the rest of the world. I thought that was interesting. And yeah, generic is exactly what I would use to describe this. The technology, the visual effects, super cool. Overall, generic and not what I expected. It was not the display of pride that I thought I would be getting when I watched this. You just heard Neterna by Karl Knut Sigurd on Student Radio Nitiotan Komenia. And now, back to China. This brings me to my last thing that I wanted to mention, which is one part, or the part that struck me the most, is they're walking in a line, and it's this is the one part that I remember seeing. There wasn't any uniform. Um, so when they did performances, everyone was in uniform. The makeup was very even, heights similar, very uniform. But then at some point, they all walk in a line together. And as they're crossing the stage, images of the pandemic, testing, I don't know what else. It was just like medical staff giving COVID tests to people. And then all of a sudden, you're transitioning from COVID images to just kids celebrating. And then almost like stock photos of China. It was really odd, but it had very inspirational music behind it. And they were walking together. To me, it seemed like they were trying to, again, emphasize togetherness, emphasize this. We're working together to get over this pandemic, to move on and try to make the world forget, again, their role in exacerbating the situation. So I'm not sure if you guys have any thoughts on that, but uh, we can get back to that later. I think it's um, 
a pretty typical Chinese move in a sense, because a lot of the time, or nowadays, they even have laws considering you can't be, uh, or you get banned online if you don't submit a positive, positive vibe, let's say. So this is very, in a sense, very ingrained in how the Chinese Communist Party presents itself and China. It always tries to be a very upbeat sort of spirit and showing a lot of people smiling, maybe dancing, happily taking the vaccine, typical uh, Chinese national propaganda in a sense. The vaccine part, I forgot, you're right. They were showing images of people getting vaccinated, um, which I also thought was interesting, especially to show at this in this circumstance, it just didn't seem like the place. Um, but definitely we know that international sport and ceremonies like this are, all, there's always an agenda when it comes to this stuff. So, yeah. Um, and so overall, wait, sorry. So overall, I would say that it could have been more traditional, um, could have been a little bit more nationalistic. And like I said, uh, the music for me was not necessarily Chinese. There were a lot of things that didn't scream traditional Chinese culture, which it's something that China loves to call back to. And this time there was no reference. And I think in a lot of ways they tried to bridge together ancient tradition and modernity, but more focus on the modernity and the future and the moving on part. And I'm not really sure if this was the same thing that was going on in the social media environment in terms of public response to the Olympics. Right, right. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, part, part of what makes it so surprising, I guess, is it's not just that it's you know China not not doing this traditional sort of thing where they they showcase who they are and what their culture is about. It's also the Olympics you know, in general. After the opening ceremony is done, you get this this time of, of heightened national pride wherever you are, not just in China. And so it's worth thinking about how that kind of nationalism manifests in China, especially you might say from the ground up. So on social media. I'm becoming And that was Becoming All Alone by Regina Spector on Student Radio Nitiota Comenia. Back to the episode. And the reason this is so interesting uh, is because, as people will undoubtedly know, the Chinese government, on a whole range of domestic and foreign policy questions, appeals to and, and tries to wield a certain kind of patriotic spirit. So what I wanted to, to do is, is to talk a bit about how Olympic nationalism fits into that picture, in particular maybe asking the question, does it strengthen the party's narratives which rely on that sense of patriotism? Now, in connection to this, you know, one of the biggest things to have happened on the Chinese media sphere during Beijing 2022 was Eileen Gu's gold medal in the in the free ski big air competition. Now, you, you probably don't, needn't have watched the Olympics to uh, to know that she was she was born in the US and, and raised in the US, but she decided to, she had decided to come out for, for China. And it's, it's, well, it's difficult to sort of overstate how big of a star she is. She's enormous. I mean, she's, I would probably say at this point in time, one of top 10 biggest people in China to sort of, for, for kids to look up to and for, for people to follow and to admire. So, of course, there was, there was an enormous amount of celebration when she won the gold medal among Chinese netizens, the so-called Wang Yao, which is, uh, translates to uh, internet friends, very sort of cutesy way. At the same time, you have these other Chinese-American athletes, and they fared, fared a lot less well online in China. Beverly Zhu has the same background as Eileen Gu in the sense that she was also born and raised in the US and decided to represent China, but she didn't do so well. 
She was destroyed online, and the idea was that, well, if a homegrown athlete had had her spot, they would have done better. And then, of course, there's Nathan Chen, who didn't come out of China, but who's also Chinese-American, who, who, who represents the, the US, and who dominated figure skating, and who was actually, you know, wasn't treated very nicely either on, in many of the Weibo posts about him, where they called him Ruhua, which translates to something like a disgrace to China, which has to do not just with the fact that he was representing the United States, but also because he's not been particularly careful with sort of being critical of, of the Chinese government in the past. So he's publicly critical of the CCP? Yeah, not, not even in a, in a really big way. He's just said a few times that, you know, it's not great what they're doing, more or less. So, of course, to some extent, these, these grassroots sentiments are in line with, or at least not counter to what the party would like to see, sort of the kind of patriotism they, they, they'd like to see. And so official state television, very savvy and very quickly picking up goo fever, advertising her basically whenever, whenever it was possible. But this is only one aspect of the kind of nationalism you see on Weixin and all these, the, the social media in, in China. And it's a bit too quick to say that the party must benefit from these sorts of sentiments. And that's because there have been some academic studies into this as well. Zhang and colleagues did one in 2018, just to, just to mention one. Just because people are proud of their country, especially when it comes to these sorts of big events, that really doesn't mean they don't also <laughs> trash or at least sardonically uh, mock the way it's run. And this happens a lot on Chinese social media. That's to say that at the same time as you've got this national pride against geopolitical rivals, there's those sorts of nationalist sentiments appear alongside state criticisms mostly. And it's mostly sort of criticisms of the bureaucracy that is involved in organising these sorts of things and organising everyday life in China. So, I mean, those who follow Chinese social media will know that a favourite target of many of the so-called local administrative and local enforcement bureaus you have in every city and who perceive to be inept and sometimes corrupt and least ineffective, so-called chengguan. There's a lot of resistance to the sort of bureaucratic censorship of um, which has been ramped up in, in recent years against the sort of the morally degenerate kinds of movements that she's opposed to. So very often LGBTQ aligned. We talked a bit about males being too effeminate nowadays, at least sort of in the eyes of the party. You just heard Veckans singel Talking to Myself by The Linda Lindas at Studentradion 98,9. Now, to the East. It's um, much like the rest of us. Uh, they've, they really dislike what they perceive to be sort of over, overblown bureaucracy. Um, and in that sense, just to sort of relate it to the Olympics, it's not a coincidence that the, the COVID organization was, was probably the number one most displayed thing the government really tried to show, you know, we're doing this well because um, that's part of what their legitimacy depends on. I think COVID played a really interesting role in these Olympics from the ceremony to, like you said, on social media, how people were responding to it at local levels, but also how the government was trying to handle it actually on the ground and also how they were trying to display to the rest of the world that they were handling it. As I was listening to Jonah talk about social media and public response to the Olympics and also how Beijing was trying to portray itself, I kept thinking about saving face. I remember when I took my first Chinese classes and they did a little bit of like culture lessons, they would always talk about the idea of saving face. And I think it's really important for anyone that wants to try to understand why China Specifically, the CCP behaves the way it does. You have to understand this idea of saving face and making sure that 
you are not ridiculed on a world stage. And I think that ties into the way they handled COVID. And I think it also ties into maybe some of the bigger political movements that were happening during the Olympics or I guess in recent months. And I think Isaac was going to talk to us about some of that. Yeah, because intrinsically, or what goes hand in hand on a larger scale when you think of saving face, is also this Chinese cultural heritage of uh, Tianming or uh, the mandate of heaven, which ties into that where it's the heaven would send omens that the regime is bad and it's time for a new one. And in that sense, it's also important then not only for a space-saving measure from the CCP to handle corona, for example, well, but it would also be a critique from the environment that they're handling or that they don't have the right to the rule. Because even though you might think, well, Isaac, I don't hear CCP proclaiming themselves to be a dynasty, but what you have to remember is when it comes to China... History is everywhere. And to illustrate this, we start with a face-saving exercise where after Mao died and the Cultural Revolution ended, Deng Xiaoping, who later became his uh, successor and new paramount leader of the country, didn't want to make Mao out to be all bad. And one way they did this was they put the blame of the Cultural Revolution on Mao's wife, and in one and the gang of four. And to tie this back to history, he used the reference of a Chinese empress during the Tang dynasty, who after yeah, after just being the wife and concubine of one emperor, then succeeding to becoming a dowager, so an empress or like a ruler in the shadows, that was then later as that one man died became the official, the one and only empress of China with the name of Wu Zetian. And just by uttering her name in relation to Mao's late wife, everybody in China knew the reference without further explanation. And this ties very much into how China then conducts itself in all things, because everything has a precedent in the past. This is why, for example, they emphasize the very dynasty cycles that has recently been more and more criticized as a simplistic view of Chinese history. That was Concrete by Barry on Student Radio Niteho Takamaniya. We are Radio UF, broadcasting on Chinese production of power. If there is this continuously reoccurring dynasties in China, the CCP doesn't even need to go out and proclaim themselves to be the new dynasty that rules China, because it will already be assumed as long as they maintain the mandate of heaven. Not only do they then use history to legitimize their own rule, they also use history to lay claim to territories, as many do. For example, their claim to Tibet, as well as Taiwan, ties back to the Qing dynasty, the time when China controlled the most amount of space. But in contrast, for example, it also needs to have some strategic value to China as of now, because they don't, even though they could, for the same reason, lay claim to Mongolia. They only maintain the inner Mongolia that is currently part of China. In a more diffuse way, they also use 
history to lay claim to some of the parts of the South China Sea. Right, right. Um, actually, I think it's really interesting how all of this history can sort of be brought back into context in the present day and how it plays out even when it comes to the Olympics. Earlier today, I was talking with Jonah and we were talking about how when Taiwan was announced, when the team came out, there was like a different name for Taiwan under a certain yeah. broadcast. What's interesting is due to a degree an agreement, Taiwan never competes under Taiwanese flag. They have to compete under Chinese Taipei. Mainland China is the People's Republic of China, while Taiwan is the Republic of China. Um, so there's that. But also, and this is this um, has made the Dutch news at some point, I believe, right? China, there's, there's different ways of saying Chinese Taipei. Um, so in the official broadcast, the one that sort of everyone gets to hear, sort of in the West, the, the one that commentators use to, to, to commentate over, you hear the announcers when the Taiwanese delegation enters, you hear them say, Zhonghua uh, Taipei, and which with the Hua there in, indicates a cultural affinity. Um, but they uh, domestically they say Zhongguo Taipei, and the the guo there just indicates, let's say, sort of country. geographical property, basically. Yeah, that they're their province, they're they're part of the country. Um, so there's two different stories being told there. So that's again a very interesting discussion, uh, specifically after the little bit of history and relevance that uh, Isaac just gave us. Isaac, I don't know if you had like any concluding remarks or if you wanted to say something and then pass it off to Melina. Oh, I think one final thing to remember with this. So not only does China use yeah, history in many ways, then this also, or because of China's position in the region as it's been historically, they still in many ways think of themselves as the state that takes tribute from its neighboring countries. And I think that might very well tie into sort of how China conducts itself on the world stage and treats other connecting countries. I just want to live in the booth while you destroy this truth for me. That was Free by Bakar at Studentradion 98,9. Back to Radio UF. Absolutely, absolutely, Isaac. And we're talking today about the projection of Chinese power. And I thought that an interesting space to look at would be the so-called Indo-Pacific. The very concepts of the Indo-Pacific, though contested, has seen a rise in recent years. It recognizes an increased connectivity between the Indian and the Pacific Oceans and highlights the growing importance of the region in global geopolitics. And this holds particularly true as the center of gravity of global economy has shifted from the Atlantic to the Indo-Pacific. And the area has emerged as a hub for global trade and energy supply. Um, as the German Institute for Global and Area Studies explains, the Indo-Pacific is not a coherent world region, but rather a strategic space in which China and the USA, as well as other regional and extra-regional actors, compete for influence. So while all those different actors have different priorities, each of them stresses important and growing economic and security-related connections between the Pacific and the Indian Ocean ocean region. But what I found really interesting was that a shared concern amongst most of um, the players in the region was the rising influence of China. 
Other powers, particularly the US, New Zealand, Japan and Australia, are seeking the crucial liberation of smaller states in order to achieve a multipolar order in a free and open Indo-Pacific. And um, an effective way to do so remains the provision of humanitarian or development aid. And China, not surprisingly, is particularly active in the matter. Yeah. Indeed, most of the Pacific countries' main source of foreign aid comes from Beijing, which invests generously in infrastructures and telecommunications. And a very good illustration of all that is the latest delivery of humanitarian aid in tsunami hit Tonga last January. Because, yeah, the eruption of an undersea volcano on January the 15th devastated the archipelago, leaving its inhabitants in dire need for food, shelter and drinking water as the volcanic ashes contaminated aquifer sources. The relief operations had been further complicated by COVID-19 as international as well as local humanitarian actors worked together towards the effective delivery of what has been called contactless humanitarian aid. Foreign crews were thoroughly disinfected before any operations and each cargo was placed in isolation for three days despite the urgency of needs. But most importantly, there was no direct contact between the islanders and humanitarian aid workers. But um, what I found very insightful was that, you know, a few days after the natural hazards, as the relief operations were getting organized and so on, former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd tweeted that Australia must be first and foremost giving assistance to Tonga and that failing that, China will be there in spades. And I thought that this really highlighted how humanitarian operations were also embedded in a broader geostrategic competition between actors uh, with an eye on the Pacific. And I don't know, it just struck me how humanitarian aid really can be a way of trying to, you know, getting the favor of like small nations that matter for geopolitics and so on. But yeah, then I decided, you know, not to stop at like these big geopolitical interests, but to actually look at what the small Pacific nations want and what role they want to play in this like Indo-Pacific geostrategic space, whatever. And what I found was that while China and others are courting those small Pacific states, hoping to develop military bases on their turquoise atolls, the Pacific island countries are really seeking to exert autonomy and agency, not only in the region, but also on the global stage. And so they're like developing the idea of like a blue Pacific you know, attempting to forge a collective pan-oceanic identity that really reflects their shared interests as uh, custodians of that space. Because, yeah, they're all strongly affected by climate-related issues and they've really emphasized their desire to lead sustainable ocean governance, you know, beyond all those, like, power competitions. And what I found super insightful was that in uh, the Pacific Islands forum's bow declaration which was like a declaration on regional security all those states declared that the single greatest security threat was not china but rather climate change
You just heard Unnecessary Drama by Belle and Sebastian on Student Radio Nityota Kaminiya. Now, back to China. Yes, Melina, you are so, so right. And specifically, China is a particularly interesting country to look at because now that I'm thinking about it, it strikes me that China is investing so much money in imposing their power slash foreign influence through aid throughout the world, not just in the Indo-Pacific or in Africa. Actually, I have a friend that went to Africa, I would say a year and a half ago, and she said that everywhere you go, you see the mm-hmm. trucks with the materials, and it's all in Chinese. And there's also, cr- oh, China's wow. received yeah, criticism because they bring in their workers, like you mentioned, and it's not really providing economic benefits or too many economic benefits for the people there. It's more of like, mm-hmm. there's multiple agendas here. And like I was saying, I think it strikes me that there's so much investment in this specifically because there's still such a high wealth disparity in China. And my guess for this, which is probably the most obvious, and then I guess ties back into the whole theme of the episode, is that the way China is viewed domestically by its own people is just as important or as a way other countries perceive it to be. Um, and here when mm-hmm. I talk yeah. about China, I'm talking about the government. Uh, I think it's really easy to always talk about China, China, China. And oftentimes we have this like monolith in our head, but really the CCP, even though the CCP in and of itself is not a monolith, there's a lot of nuance within this idea of China. But I also think that it's valid to ask that question now, like I said, given the the wealth disparity that is a reality in China. I mean, you go to a big city and um, you see massive amounts of wealth in Shanghai, Beijing. I mean, there's a concentration and you see it in the opening ceremony when they do like the drone footage of the stadium it is insane like the lights the the stadium itself Mm. the architecture it's you know this modern high-tech new beijing right um but you drive out a little bit to the rural areas and it's very different and also in china you can't really move around however you want there's restrictions so if i grew up in a village it's really difficult for me to move to beijing obviously Mm. there's certain policies and reasons for that and Again, that goes back to this idea of like the disparity and how people that live in rural areas are very different from people that live in these highly urbanized cities in China. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of this, um, it, it it's going to be interesting to see, hopefully um, not, because I obviously don't want people to be harmed. But you're right, Isaac, you bring up a good point. If something should happen to the economy and it should suffer, what is going to happen? Because the the disparities are is already there. Mm. And I think at the same time, we also have the conversation of, I think, Melina, you mentioned this earlier with Australia, how now mm-hmm. a lot of other world leaders are starting to uh, question this influence and they're starting to wake up and see, oh, China's not just in these areas that we thought, they are here, here, here. And maybe they were aware, but maybe they, there, there hasn't been much discussion over the amount of investment. And, I know a couple of years ago, I think it was just like two or three, where I read how much China was investing in Latin America. And I was shocked because um, <laughs> it's a lot, a lot, a lot. And not just in big countries, but in small ones, too. I mean, obviously, Venezuela is a very uh, political and a whole another episode topic. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of this is uh, a very interesting conversation, I would say. Yes, I would just like to say... With the situation as it is in Ukraine, 
we also have to be mindful or some people have made the comparison to Taiwan and currently it seems unlikely that the situation would develop similarly for Taiwan though there is something we need to pay close attention to because especially coming up on the 100 year anniversary of the founding of uh, China I think if I remember correctly, they have an explicit goal of reuniting the whole of China, claiming what all they own. Yeah, there's a lot of um, people that have written books and speculate over what you know China's long game is. And 2049 is going to be a interesting year. I know that uh, a lot of people are expecting different things, but you're right, there is talk of reuniting China, and it's something that she has said in speeches, and that has been not only reiterated by him, but other government officials, and it's why there's a lot of tension over the military exercises in Taiwan that have been escalating and escalated, I think, recently in September or October, I believe, was the most, I guess, recent. As well as the constant flyovers. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, like I said earlier, a whole other podcast episode discussion which I hope we get to have with you. Thank you so much for joining us. It was truly a pleasure. Yeah, uh, it's been great fun sending with you. And when China is the topic, there is always things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot for the invitation, guys. Best of luck with the continuation of The Common Room. Let's keep the conversation running. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. <laughs>